0: Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. The New Testament comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 12, verses 9 through 15. Listen again for God's word to us. Love should be known without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you are in trouble and devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who cry. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God around us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Within two weeks of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, millions of people had decided to flee the country. The main route out was west. Many trains from central and eastern Ukraine terminated in Lviv. 45 miles from the Polish border. The Ukrainians leaving the country were generally women, children, seniors, and foreigners. President Volodymyr Zelensky had declared martial law and a general mobilization, meaning that men between the ages of 18 and 60 were obliged to stay. To reach the Polish border from Lviv, then you had to take a train, a bus, or a private car. Outside the station, there bus drivers advertised trips to various locations on the border. A minibus driver named Pavlo offered passages just east of the Polish border for the equivalent of $10. One of the passengers on the bus was a slim woman with wavy auburn hair and ice-blue eyes, and she held two cats in a carrier on her lap. In the row behind her were two young girls. The woman was looking out the window at a man who wore a charcoal-colored hat. He returned her gaze. Pavlo started the engine. The man placed his hand on the glass, and the woman placed her palm on the other side of the windowpane. The man removed his hand as the bus drove off. The woman let out a long breath, closed her eyes, and gathered herself. Then she opened her eyes and said, Here we go. The woman's name was Ina, and her daughters were Sasha, seven, and Olivia, five. The man outside the bus was her husband, Maxim. A couple weeks earlier, on February 24th, Russian troops entered Ukraine. Ina and Maxim tried to stay calm, but it wasn't easy. The family remained in their apartment Explosions rattled the area. One night, the children were awakened by a bang. A missile had struck the building next to a nearby sports complex where Ina often swam. Olivia saw a flash of red out the window and began to cry. Ina began asking Maksim, should we leave? For the first five days of the invasion, he demurred, arguing that the war might end quickly. But conditions worsened. And early on the morning of March 1st, Maksim said to Ina, it's time. They packed hurriedly, not knowing if they'd ever return. It was the first time that Ina and the girls had been outside since the war began. Their neighborhood, normally bustling, was desolate. An air raid silent howled. They made it to the local rail station and onto a packed train bound for Lviv, where she stood for nine hours, pressed against strangers. Once in Lviv, the family headed to the apartment of a friend of Maxim's who had offered them a room for a few days. For Ina, the thought of her amiable, slight husband joining the military was a source of both pride and anxiety but she was more worried about the safety of her mother, her aunt, and her nephew, who were all living together in Kharkiv, a city under savage bombardment. Every day, the kids had video calls with their father. Maxim tried to keep the conversations lighthearted. Ina was consumed with worry about Maxim. He was trapped in a war zone, and she was somewhere safe. The family would remain as connected as they could through video calls. This was better than nothing, she said, but it's like an electric piano. It plays music, but it's not the same. On June 7th, Ina got dreadful news. Yuri, Maxim's father, had died of a heart attack. He'd endured three months of shelling in Kharkiv, terrifying explosions at all hours. Maxim told Ina that despite the danger, he had to return to Kharkiv to bury his father. She understood but was worried about his safety. The main cemeteries on the outskirts of the city had been heavily bombed. What I've just shared with you this morning are excerpts from a New Yorker article published in June. And I encourage you to go and read the entire long-form article about Ina and her family and her journey. But right here in this moment, I want to invite you to take a moment just to reflect on what you're feeling. What emotions are bubbling up within you? How is Ina's story impacting you? What parts of your soul is it pressing on? Can we even begin to imagine what it must have been like for Ina to be away from her home, away from her husband and her family, knowing how bad things really were there, how much danger they were in? Listening to another person's story, I mean, really listening, is a kind of presence that we can offer. When we are present to someone else and to their story, it can transform us. Last Sunday, as Lindsay mentioned, we unveiled our theme for this year, Now Hear This. And over the course of the year, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be present to each other, to God, and to our community outside these walls. And we'll spend the next three Sundays in the book of Nehemiah imagining how we can be more present to each other. And we chose Nehemiah because, as I hope you'll see over these next few weeks, Nehemiah has a lot to teach us about what it means to be there for each other. But before we get to our verses from Nehemiah 1 this morning, let's back up and get a little context for this book, starting with when and where is Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is set in the post exilic period in Israel's history. What does that mean? It means that about 50 years after Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians and many Israelites were hauled off into exile, the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued an edict allowing Israelites to return to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild their city and their temple. He also ordered the Persian people to pay the Israelites a sort of reparations payment out of their own pockets to help the Israelites finance the rebuilding. This first delegation of Israelites is led by a Jew named Sheshbazar. And this vanguard returns to Jerusalem around 538 BCE to begin rebuilding the temple. This part of the story is recounted actually not in Nehemiah, but Ezra, the book that precedes Nehemiah in our Bibles today. But these two stories were originally one story, Ezra and Nehemiah, in a single book. And there we read that the Israelites encounter many challenges rebuilding the temple, but about 20 years after they've returned, it's finally finished. But even with the temple rebuilt, it's not like Jerusalem is suddenly returned to its former glory. Its population was still a fraction of what it was before the exile, and many Jews, like Nehemiah, had stayed in Persia. Nehemiah, as you heard with the kids, was the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes I. And so, while he had a specific role in the king's court, he was more than just some nameless servant to the king. He was a companion of sorts. He was in a meaningful, if not equal, relationship with the king. And now, Nehemiah was uh, almost certainly born in Persia and lived there his entire life. A little spoiler alert that next Sunday, we'll see Nehemiah travel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, but this morning in our reading, he is still in Persia. And based on the dates that are provided in verse 1, Nehemiah's story here begins around 445 BCE. So that's more than 60 years after the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, nearly a century after Cyrus has issued the edict, sending them back to Jerusalem. Rebuilding an entire city is a monumental task. And so even 100 years after the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, the city is still struggling. And that's where we pick up the story in Nehemiah 1 today. Nehemiah's brother Hanani has just returned from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asks, how are things going with the rebuilding? And his brother tells him this, he says, those in the province who survived the captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Some scholars think that this verse is a reference to the events that happened in Ezra chapter 4. The Israelites are experiencing opposition from some neighbors as they're doing the rebuilding and they appeal to the Persian king Artaxerxes for help, but he declines to help and in fact even tells them to stop rebuilding the wall altogether. And it's at this point that they think that Jerusalem came under attack and that much of the progress they had made towards rebuilding the walls especially was destroyed. And so you can imagine how devastating this setback would have been. And So Nehemiah's reaction is fitting. He writes, when I heard this news, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven the next seven verses are his prayer, or at least a summary of this days-long prayer where he calls upon God to be faithful to the promises that God has made and to once again deliver the Israelites. I want to take you back to the story we began with, the story of Ina and her family. And think about how that story made you feel. And I began with that story this morning because I think it puts us in a position to at least begin to understand what was going on in Nehemiah's mind and in his heart in the opening verses of this book. And so I want to lift up three things that Nehemiah does. Three things that teach us about what it means to be present to each other. First, Nehemiah listened. He stopped and he took the time to listen to his brother's story. Second, Nehemiah empathized. He listened to his story deeply enough that it moved him with compassion for their suffering. And third, Nehemiah prayed. He went to God in search of grace and comfort, in search of support and direction. In these three small but deeply purposeful acts, in listening, empathizing, and praying, Nehemiah shows us that to begin to be present with one another, we must do these things. Next Sunday, we'll continue on in Nehemiah's story, and Pastor Lindsay will teach you about Nehemiah's next lesson in presence, a lesson that's foreshadowed in the end of our reading today. But until then, let's practice listening to one another and praying for and with one another to love without pretending, to love each other like members of our own family, to be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying, and to devote ourselves to prayer. Amen. Having received God's word, we affirm our faith as one body in Christ. Today we use our affirmation of faith from the brief statement of faith from our denomination as you please stand in body or in spirit as we affirm our faith together. In life and in death, we belong to God. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, We trust in the one triune God, the Holy One of Israel, whom alone we worship and serve. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.